Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. If you're a Christ follower, you're both, you know. And that's the theme of the message this morning. I also think it was unfair that I have to follow Morgan Freeman's voice. <laughs> that's not right. When I was a kid, I loved Palm Sunday for two reasons. Um, one, because on Palm Sunday, after church, they gave you a toy, right? It's a sword, it's a whip. It's that thing that you use on the car ride home to annoy your sister with. Love the palm thing, that was great. And the other thing I loved about Palm Sunday was that Usually in the church that I grew up in, that was kind of a big occasion, you know, so there was, the, the music was bigger and the sights and sounds and everything, you know, the energy was higher and that was great. And it was really a, a package deal because the following week it was Easter and so that would be a great Sunday too of, you know, just a different kind of energy and so forth. And so I, I love that about uh, Palm Sunday and Easter. As I got a little bit older, <clears throat> I began to recognize there was like this disconnect. So we would have this celebration on Palm Sunday, you know, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and you know, all the high energy. And then the next week we'd come back and he's risen from the dead, he you know, died on the cross and he's now out of the grave and he's alive. Something happened in between those two Sundays that I didn't know about. Now, as an adult, I came to understand that that's what we would call Holy Week, which is an ironic kind of name for it, isn't it? Because unholy things happen during that week, culminated with Good Friday. So what happened? How did we go from, how did the crowd go from Hosanna Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and, and Jesus riding on a donkey through the streets of Jerusalem. At the time of Passover, so the city of Jerusalem would have been packed to the gills. Hundreds of thousands of people would have been in and around Jerusalem for that celebration and thousands of them lined the streets as Jesus came into the city waving palms, laying palms down on the ground before him as signs of respect and honor and calling out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then within days, not weeks or months or years, days, that very same crowd yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Crucify him. How does that happen? Well, if you do the historical study of what was going on at that time, there's some clues. Right? Jesus had really ticked off the religious leaders. I mean, they wanted him dead. They didn't like his teaching, they thought he was teaching heresy. They didn't understand what he was saying or what he was about. And they hated the fact that 
thousands and thousands and thousands of people had begun to follow him over the course of his three years of ministry. And so there was all of that kind of professional jealousy and fear, <clears throat> that insecurity about what they knew or thought they knew versus what he was saying. And there was fears among those religious leaders that Jesus was going to create an uprising. He was going to lead them into um, a rebellion against Rome and the power of Rome would come crashing down on them. So that's part of what was going on at that time with the religious leaders. With the, with the Romans, they just didn't like anybody who had any kind of following that in any way threatened their authority. They were a paranoid, jealous kind of dictatorship and they didn't put up with any nonsense. And so if there is somebody who looks like they might be causing some kind of trouble, even out on the horizon, they're going to squash it. So those are the things that, you know, kind of were going on behind the scenes, as it were. But still, is that enough? to explain it? How do you go from blessed is he to crucify him? All during that week, the religious leaders were plotting, doing all kinds of nefarious things behind the scenes to get Jesus arrested, convicted, and killed. So they're paying people to tell lies about things that they heard Jesus say that were clear, <clears throat> clearly against the teaching of the Jewish faith and against Rome. They were plotting with others in town, spreading rumors about Jesus and who he was and what he was about. They were putting pressure on the government to get Jesus arrested. And then ultimately, they convinced Judas to betray Jesus. And so all of that work, all of that behind the scenes stuff, all of that just purely evil kind of thing was going on in that week between the triumphal entry and the crucifixion. So then Jesus is arrested and he's brought before the governor, Pilate. And Pilate begins to interrogate Jesus to find out what he's about, what he can charge him with, and whether or not ultimately he can crucify him. And in that process, done kind of in a public forum where crowds of people are witnessing what's going on, Pilate cannot find anything that this man has done that is a chargeable offense, much less cause him to be crucified. But there's pressure and the, and the, the uh, religious leaders are in the midst of the crowd 
saying, this guy needs to be crucified. He needs to be crucified. And, and so the people are saying, crucify him, crucify him. And this pressure is coming on this political leader who's just trying to keep the peace. And so finally, as a way to try and placate this bloodthirst among the mob and to demonstrate the power of Rome, he orders that Jesus be scourged. And Roman scourging is a horrific thing. A whip with nine tentacles, leather tentacles, and tied to the end of each one, a piece of bone or metal or rock. So as it hits the flesh, it tears 39 times, beaten with this whip. A crown of thorns pressed down on his scalp and then dragged back out before the mob. Pilate hoping that this will be enough. And that's where the story picks up. I want to read just a portion from the Gospel of Luke, 23rd chapter, beginning with verse 23. <clears throat> but the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded. As they had requested, he released Barabbas, a man in prison for insurrection and murder. But he turned Jesus over to them to do as they wished. So there's all of this plotting, all of this behind the scenes stuff, all of these fears, all of it culminates into the crucifixion of an innocent man. I think there was something else though at play, what I would call an X factor. The definition of an X factor, according to the, uh, what do they call that dictionary? It's not a dictionary dictionary, but um, thank you. Vicki and I work together often, so it's <laughs> urban dictionary. An X factor is a variable in a given situation that could have the most significant impact on the outcome. A variable that can have the most significant impact on the outcome. There's a show, I've never actually watched it, but you know, know the idea, the X Factor. It's a, one of those singing competitions. And uh, all of the contestants have incredible voices. They're all gifted singers and so forth, but they're looking for that X Factor, that little something special, that spark, that, that it, that makes somebody more than just a great singer, it makes them a star, right? What's that X Factor? So what's the X factor in this situation? The X factor here is the human condition called sin. Sin. Not just a concept, but the reality of our human condition 
original sin. At the heart of this kind of sin is a rebellion against God. It's not about doing bad things primarily. It's about who we are. We are in rebellion against God. And the nature of that kind of sin and rebelliousness is I don't give a hoot about God's will or God's way. It's all about my will and my way. Ultimately, it's about the worship of the self. It may take on a whole variety of different forms, but it's ultimately about me. I have a feeling those religious leaders, at the core of their issue with Jesus, it wasn't theological. It wasn't concern for their people. It was about their own power and position. It was about them. It was about me. That's the X factor that I think was at work that transformed an adoring crowd into a bloodthirsty mob. From Hosanna, blessed is he, to crucify him, crucify him. It's the reality of sin. There are, I, th- I would say, you know, my own experience, there are five approaches that people take toward sin. There may be more, this isn't an exhaustive list, but it's ones that I see most often. The first one is denial, right? There's no such thing as sin. Sin is just some concoction of religious people. It doesn't really exist. It's not a real thing. People do things either because of nature or nurture and that's it. It's a denial of the reality of sin. The second one is to minimize, right? To minimize, this is one of my favorites, by the way. Well, sin, yeah, you know, I guess. I mean, everybody, doesn't everybody? But, you know, mine are not that big a deal. Right? Sure, I do some, you know, like, okay, occasionally I tell a white lie. You know, maybe I took a pencil from work. I'm sorry. (laughs) Right? So we minimize sin. We minimize what we do. And folks who minimize are also people who compare. Right? So sure, I do some things, but I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. Right? My spouse. Not my spouse, I'm just talking about, you know, this is what people say. (laughs) My spouse is in the room, I'm not talking about my spouse. (laughs) My boss, my neighbor, the guy down the street, you know, those people in DC, all of the, you know, the really bad people. And then of course there's the ultimate example of Hitler. I'm better than Hitler, (laughs) you know? So we minimize the reality of sin and its influence in our lives. A third approach is 
control. Control. Yeah, I've got some issues, I've got some things, but I'm on it. I'm working on it. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to take care of it. And we think of sin as a bad habit. You know, it's like, I know I eat too much chocolate, you know, but I'm, I've got this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut down on that or whatever it is. Sin is not a bad habit. It's like a cancer. It's at a DNA level. And to say that or to think that you can control this human condition is like saying, I can cure myself of cancer just by willing it away. Control. And the fourth one is to embrace. To embrace it. You know what? I, I get it. I'm a sinner. That's who I am. You know, nothing I can do about it. it oh, well, you know, I'm going to just give myself fully over to it. I'm going to live on my own terms. I'm going to live by my, by my own standards and so forth. It's who I am. And oftentimes, folks who have that approach walk around with a boatload of guilt and shame. This is who I am. This is my reality. There's nothing I can do about it. All four of those approaches mean that we stay imprisoned. We live in the bondage of the sin reality. And so whether we're living in denial or trying to minimize the reality of it and its impact on my life and the lives of people around me and our world, or I'm trying to control it, or just giving myself over to it. Any of those choices is a choice to stay in bondage, to stay imprisoned in and by sin, our human condition, our rebellion against God. But this message is not about sin. This is a message about freedom. And so there is a fifth approach to sin, and it's also an X factor. This one thing, this one um, factor has the greatest impact on the whole thing. You see, we can choose to accept Christ who paid the price for our sin and whose sacrifice, blood sacrifice, covers our sin and makes us right before God and sets you free to be the person that God desires for you to be. In fact, by saying Jesus is the X factor, actually the word Christ in the Greek, the first letter of Christ is the X symbol. He's literally the X factor. For those of you who are upset when somebody uses Xmas, that's not a new thing that we start in this country in order to leave Christ out of Christmas. It literally stands for Christ. 
It's the X factor. This, is, this whole idea is captured really well in, uh, throughout the New Testament, obviously, but um, there's a scripture I want to share with you this morning. It's from Hebrews 9, 13 through 15. It says this, under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. I want to stop there for just a second. Think about that. The blood of Christ cleanses our conscience. It cleans our, our mind, our thought life how we perceive the world, how we perceive ourselves, it cleanses that and allows us to what? To worship God. Sin is a rebellion. Accepting Christ's sacrifice allows us to worship the living God. And by worshiping the living God, it's not just talking about we can come together and have these uh, times of worship, public worship. It's really talking about living a life honoring the will and purpose of God. That's what real worship is. It's living our lives in ways that honor God, his will and his way. And so when we are, when our sin is covered by the sacrifice that Christ made, we're able to worship the living God. I get excited about that stuff. So I lost my place. Uh, okay. So we did the first sin. We, we're worshiping. Hold on. New covenant between God and people. Okay. Are you with me? Yeah. Fine, then you read it. <laughs> In fact, why don't you read it? Pick it up. Let's. Pick it up where, you, where I left off. Good. Yes. Right. That's good. Right. Right. To what? Right. All of that to set us free, to set you free. It's not about guilt and shame. It's not walking around, I'm a terrible sinner. It's to set us free, to cleanse our consciousness so that we can become the men and women that God dreams for us to be. You see, those guys back 2,000 years ago on that first holy, unholy week thought they were in control. Those religious leaders thought they were so wise and so smart and so savvy by plotting and working toward 
the execution of Jesus. They thought they were in control. Pilate, with all of the force of Rome behind him, thought he was in control. But the reality was something else was in control. This X factor, this human sin on display, that's what was driving all of the things that took place. And they couldn't see it. They thought they were in control, but they weren't. And so we have this X factor. We have Christ, whose death on that cross covers your sin and makes you right before a holy God. One last thing. If you've accepted Christ, if you are a disciple walking in faith, you never get to say, I used to be a sinner. You never get to say that because we are always sinners in recovery. If you are familiar with, at all with the uh, 12 steps of AA, that process that has brought so many people out of the grip of addiction, whatever the addiction might be, and gave them freedom from that addiction. If you've ever talked to somebody who is in one of those programs, they will never say, I'm a former alcoholic, or I used to be an alcoholic. They will always say, I'm in recovery. They may have been in recovery for over 20 years, 30 years, but they are always in recovery. That's brilliant. That's the same for us when it comes to sin and the reality of that human condition. We are in recovery. Our sin has been covered. It's no longer the driving force of our life. We have a new force, a new spirit that's driving our lives. But I'm always in this kind of recovery. There's always this, this level of struggle between the old nature and its sin and its rebellion against God and the new nature through the blood and sacrifice of Christ that calls me to live a life in the light. So, good morning, saints. And good morning, sinners. We're both when we follow Christ. But sin no longer holds us in bondage. Christ has made you free. Let's stand together for closing prayer. Yeah. So Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you were willing to come to set us free. That we are no longer enslaved by the reality of our sin nature. That you are doing a new thing, a new work in us. Redesigning us. Reforming us into the image of Christ and that for the sake of others. Lord, when we fall, as we so often do, we thank you that you forgive us 
that you make us clean and that you set us back on the path. For all of that, Lord, we are eternally grateful. And all God's people agreed and said, amen. Have a great week.